Hey, how's it going? Welcome to episode 119 of Tommy G Talks. Now, I have a legend on the podcast today as my guest. So in this episode, I spoke to Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. And it was an absolute honour and a privilege to sit down with Joe on Zoom and talk a little bit about the story of how Reebok came about and how him and his brother Jeff founded the company that we all know. And I'm sure at some point you've owned either a pair of Reebok shoes or some clothing or you've been to an event uh, that's been uh, sponsored by Reebok or you've had some association and affinity with the brand. And it is a colossal global brand that all began back in 1958. But there's actually a story before that of the Foster family and the heritage of how this all came about. And in this interview, Joe goes to some really interesting places with telling me about some of the early days and some of the hardships and, of course, challenges that they faced. And, you know, this podcast is all about transforming challenge into confidence. And so we also got to hear about how Joe turned things around, how they pulled through to achieve the greatness that they eventually did. And of course, we get firsthand some of the success and pivotal moments along the way. So thanks for listening. I would really like to know what you think of this episode. So do hit me up on social media at Tommy Gentleman on Twitter or Instagram and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. All right, so gives me great excitement to present to you episode 119 with Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. Welcome to Tommy G Talks. Um, okay, Joe, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. It's, I was talking to somebody about you earlier and how this all came about and actually how you're, I mentioned to you an email, you're a bit of an inspiration, uh, well, you're a massive inspiration, but personally to me and a bit of a hero of mine, but I didn't even know who you were. It's kind of a weird, and I mean that in, in a sense that growing up as a kid, I'd always look at these these brands and, and I loved my sport and my football and I'd be like drawing like my own like kits and my own shoes and I'd always like my parents when they when, when I was kind of given a pair of like branded shoes I'd always be like wow and I'd look after them so much and really treasure that and I always had this this real I looked up to Reebok as a brand and and, and throughout my whole life it's just always been there um that when this came about I, I kind of had to pinch myself a little bit and I, I wanted to make that very clear just from the get-go because you know you you've achieved so much and I'm I'm so grateful to be to be spending this time with you today so thanks for being here well it's, it's very nice that you should say that it's a good compliment and not many people really know my name absolutely because as far as I'm concerned they're not buying Joe Foster shoes, they're buying Reebok. So the important thing in my life was Reebok. Always, it's getting the name out there and don't, don't sort of divert the attention by somebody who wants to stand up and be known. No, Reebok was the brand and uh, we did pretty well in the end. We did a lot. We did, we did good. Yes. You did, you did. I mean, and, and the, the legacy still continues, of course, and, and we'll talk a little bit about um, legacy. But um, let's, let's dive straight in with like, you know, for me as well, um, with a brief background and a brief kind of story or overview for anybody who isn't familiar with the Reebok story, particularly your, uh, how, how you've been such a massive part of the brand we all know and love. Um, so, you know, what's a brief background of, of, of the whole journey? Well, the story itself is about my experiences from a youngster to founding Reebok with my brother, Jeff. We, we did that uh, in 1958 and experiencing the problems and the successes until I retired eventually at the end of 1989. Uh, but let me start first with the family tradition. And that, that really goes back to my grandfather. when He made himself the first pair of spikes that we can identify in 1895. 
<clears throat> at the tender age of 15. Wow. And uh, from that on, in the first two decades of, uh, of the 20th century, he made, uh, he made many Olympic gold medalist shoes, which is something a lot of people don't know. He made them all, I think for all the teams competing in Antwerp in 1920, he made the shoes for them. But wow. what he did, he also made the shoes for the, uh, the three athletes who we all know, and they were uh, immortalized in the Chariots of Fire. And that's Harold Abrams, Eric Liddell, and Lord Burley. Wow. He actually made those shoes that they won their gold medals in. Wow, I mean, that's just greatness, isn't it? Like, you don't get closer to greatness than that, especially on an athletic level. And we all aspire and look up to Olympic athletes. And to know that that's where the roots of this brand and this this whole journey came from is really quite special. Um, because most people in my generation, for example, will just be aware of Reebok as the trainers. And, yes. you know, the uh, I can remember... Um, the, the clothes uh, as well being a youngster and the various different um logos that have been associated with the brand as well right. the time. um but it's amazing to see that that there was this sort of backstory and origin before it was even Reebok as well and how that's in your family that's really quite special yeah and it, it also goes back beyond grandfather because we people often say well how, how did your granddad come to uh, make a pair of track shoes how did he do that and it really Really, because it, when he left school, he didn't want to be a confectioner. He, he lived over the shop with his parents, but they, they had a confectioner shop. He didn't want that. Okay. But before then, he'd been visiting his grandfather, his father, no, his grandfather, his grandfather, and his grandfather lived in Nottingham, and he was a cobbler. And, but he didn't just, just repair shoes. He also repaired cricket boots. He was sort of well in with the... Uh, the Northampton cricket teams, they repaired all those cricket boots. <clears throat> and we just imagine, what did grandfather, he, he said to his grandfather, um, why, why are the studs in the bottom of these uh, cricket boots? And he probably answered, it helps them grip the grass when they're, they're running and they're, they're bowling. And from that, he probably got the idea, well, he was, he was a member of the local athletics club, Bolton Primrose Harriers. And it probably struck him, why don't I put something, I'll put some spikes in. I put some nails in, and that's what he did. So he must—he certainly was the one that developed and inspired you. But not only was he good at doing that, he was incredible at marketing his product. He knew that by supplying people like Harold Abrams, mm. um, Alf Shrub. Alf Shrub yep. broke three world records and ran the farthest distance in one hour. Wow. That was in Edinburgh at Ibrox Park. Okay. In Glasgow, I brought well, and he did that in one event, and he brought three world records. Wow! So you can see that oh, he probably learned that if I supply some of these leading runners, I'm going to get my business well known. Yeah, and he did, and and the amount of adverts that he used to place in in the papers, and I think it's the Sportsman, which was a sort of a Manchester paper, incredible uh, adverts, mm -hmm. uh, things like. Uh, if you can prove that Fosters are not the best spikes you've ever worn, well, I'll pay you £100. And if you can mm -hmm. think that somewhere in the early 1900s, what £100 would be worth. Yeah. So it's incredible. So that's how it started. It's influencer marketing. And people think that influencer marketing is this kind of new thing that is being done on Instagram and stuff. And it kind of, for me, it takes me to a really interesting <laughs> place, Joe, which is what do you think he would do with the tools that are available now? And how quickly do you think he could have grown what he did grow with the technology and the reach that we have and the exposure that we can get right now in this world that we're in? Well, I mean, those things are very difficult to answer. The only thing I know that with the tools that he had, he created something that uh, I think people like Adidas and Nike, they all realize that you have to have influence. Yeah. And you influence people uh, by results mm -hmm. and the you know, we'll say Adidas as a sponsor of Manchester United, and it's that, yep. that that rubs off. And so all the kids in the street, they want a pair of Adidas. Yeah, well, <laughs> we've seen this. We've seen this with shoes like for, geez, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan. And, you know, with shoes, we've seen, right. we've seen names of athletes just completely take over. Interesting that Reebok had Shaq 
you know, Shaquille O'Neal as, as their kind of guy that he really helped with the whole brand exposure and awareness over in the US. Um, did you ever, did you ever meet him? Did you ever kind of have any run-ins with him? <clears throat> unfortunately, <clears throat> unfortunately, by the time Shaq came along, I was well back from okay. that yeah. area. And the brand was big. I don't know, what, what year was he playing? Can you, do you remember oh. when he was playing? Be in mid-90s. the 90s. Mid-90s to late 90s, yeah. Mid-90s or crossing over to the early yeah. 2000s, yeah. Well, I'd retired from active service, I'd say, in, in 1989, the end okay. of 1989. You know, the company grown, we were big, we'd done lots of things, but it was time for me to step back and let other people get on with it. Yes, um, okay. So I didn't meet Shaq. Okay. Nice to, but he's still <laughs> around, and he's, he's still part of the Reebok uh, promotion team and whatever. He, yeah. he he does turn up in a few of their uh, videos, especially when Victoria Beckham joined the company. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And he was shown there with Victoria Beckham. So he's still around. And who knows? If we get to America, if the letters go to America some of these days, it might, it might yeah. even meet up with him. Well, he'll, he'll definitely need a book, won't he? He'll need a signed book, Joe. You know, if he's, <laughs> we're talking about him. He needs to be talking about you. Um, with with um, with regards to the other people that we've mentioned there and the, the the brand association with these famous people, I can remember, mate, my first pair of football boots, which I think I literally slept in bed with them. Um, I you know I loved them that much, and they were Reebok Sidewinders, and they yeah. were they were Ryan Giggs's boot. He'd basically right. endorsed it. I don't know how much involvement he would have had, but. I can remember, like, I think I was maybe nine or ten years old, and it was just the best day ever when I had a pair of these Reebok signboards. Right. So it might have been around the time when you stepped back, I'm not sure, but what recollection have you got of that particular boot and campaign? Well, <clears throat> we did meet. I, I met uh, Ryan Giggs, and it's quite amazing. He was much taller than I, I thought he was. You know, he, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, nice guy. No, I, I was not that... Uh, not really involved in uh, in in the fo- football side. I'd, I'd try to get uh, Reebok to to come over and run the the football soccer, soccer side from the UK because mm-hmm. in America it's soccer and mm-hmm. and in those days it was just soccer and really they didn't uh, know that much about it. So uh, <clears throat> I just said we should we should have an academy over in the UK. Never happened. Uh, I think if it had. We, we had done much more in, in soccer, but there were, there were good boots. And uh, it's hard to say why they didn't continue, but they didn't. Yeah, well, I think they probably set the way for a lot of other designs, to be honest, um, yeah. because they were, I think he was maybe one of the first to put his face to a boot as well back then. Um, and obviously now we know that that's pretty much the game for, for the brands at the top level. Um, oh, yes, yes. Joe, let's let's get into um, some of the origin days. Now, a lot a lot of the talk that we have here on the podcast, usually with a, with a guest, is about kind of what hardships were faced, um, particularly before the big breakthroughs happened. Because one thing that I firmly believe in is often our greatest achievements and greatest success and greatest glory is literally tucked right behind our greatest challenge, and um, we have to go through that in order to experience the the, the glory. Um, what sticks out in your mind of um, a story you could share with us today here uh, on some of the hardships that you may have um, faced in the early days? Well, I mean, it, you know, my period at Reebok covers a long time, and it's from the startup, and startup is difficult. But let me take it back a little bit further because Jeff and I worked for the family business, Jadwood Foster and Sons. Um, the only reason they're not famous is because they went out of business. And the, what it was, it, both Jeff and I worked for them in the early 50s. And then in 1953, both Jeff and myself had to do national service. Wow. In those days, we just had to do two years national service. <clears throat> and although Jeff was older than me, he'd been deferred. So it, it so happened we were away at the same time. Mm. Jeff was in Germany and he could see what was happening with uh, Adidas, Puma. Um, and I, I was away, I was still in the UK, but we came back and came back into the factory. And because we'd been away and come back, and we, we're looking around and we could see a company that was failing. Mm. It was stuck there somewhere between the 1930s and the 90, early 1950s. It was just stuck. Adidas was moving on, other brands were coming along. And we used to say, father, father and uncle, they had inherited the business when granddad died. Grandfather died in 1933, 
and I was born in 1935. But I was born. I was born on his birthday, 18 months after he died. I, I did read that. Wow, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. And so um, we, we started saying to them, "Look, you know, we need to move this business forward." But unfortunately, father and uncle, they didn't have a good word for each other. They were feuding most of the time, falling out. And so we tried an awful lot to say, come on, we, we've got to move forward. But it was always fell on deaf ears or there was a, well, not a very pleasant remark on just get on with you doing it. It'll be yours when we're dead. Sure. <laughs> I say, sorry, Dad, we don't want you dead. <laughs> we want a successful business. And by the time you die, there'll be no business. So Jeff and I decided the only one way to do to answer this was to leave and set up our own business, which eventually we did in 1958. Okay, yeah. And um, we didn't want to compete with the uh, parent company, so mm -hmm. we moved to the next town, to Bury, which okay. is nearer to the footwear making in Lancashire, which is the Rossendale Valley. Mm -hmm. So we moved six miles up the road, and uh, we've, we've rented for ourselves an old brewery, mm -hmm. <laughs> which... Uh, you know, if you talk about a challenge, this was a really old brewery. The bottom floor, no windows. So we know, well, we can't use the bottom floor. The top floor, almost no roof. I mean, there were that many holes in it that it was just, up the whole floor was covered with buckets and uh, tins and everything just to catch the rain. So we had to settle for the middle floor, which is all right, but this is an old building and an old wooden floor. Mm -hmm. So all the machinery, second-hand machinery, mind that we could uh, we could buy had to be placed around the edges of the <laughs> of the floor because the middle of the floor, we're sure it wouldn't have held the weight. So that was our first challenge, wow. uh, you know. But okay, we're gone and we're we're making footwear. Um, <clears throat> now we named our fledgling company Mercury Sports Footwear. Okay. We started with that, and that was in 19, November 1958. And only to find 18 months later, our accountant said, look, uh, <clears throat> rather than sort of face some problems in the future, you should register your name. Mm. Uh, if you don't register your name and something use it, if you're successful, and nothing you can do about it, except fight them in court to say that you've been using it before. So uh, in order to register the name, we had to use a patent agent. And I toddled off to Manchester to this uh, Wilson Gun and Ellis, they called. And a nice day it was too, because uh, the window was open. And he told me, he said, well, unfortunately, Mercury's already registered. <laughs> yeah. You can't have it. So, so that's on the day. Yeah. yeah. I said, well, what's the answer? He said, well, they'll sell it to you for £1,000. <laughs> £1,000 in those days, impossible. So he looked through his open window. And he pointed to a sign, Kodak. Well, he said, well, he said, that's a name that means nothing. He said, you want, you want a name like that? Oh, right. But he said, look, bring me, don't bring me one name, bring me 10, because we've got to check it with the registrar and see, see if you can use it. Well, you go back. I don't know if you've ever sat down and thought, what can we name this? And you go through... <clears throat> anyway, I had, in 1943, during, during the war, I, I won an 80-yard sprint race. Mm -hmm. And the prize was a dictionary. It was a Webster's, American Webster's Dictionary. You know, why in the middle of the war you'd get an American dictionary, I don't know, because, yeah, American dictionary, the spellings are different. Yeah. Uh, Colour doesn't have a U, and labour doesn't have a U, things like this. Um, but I'm leafing through my dictionary, and uh, I happen to like the letter R. I thought it was a strong, strong letter to start anything with. And I flipped across Reebok, R-W-E-B-O-K. Had it been an Oxford English dictionary, it would have been R-H-E-B-O-K. And that probably wouldn't have uh, struck me as the same. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this, along with many names of uh, animals and birds, uh, we put them all together. I went back to the agent. He put them through his sieve, as it were, and found it. The, the, only, the only one that really uh, has come out of this is Reebok, and we wanted Reebok because we thought, 
It's different. It's unusual, and it's easy. It's two syllables, and uh, it said we've only got we've got two possible objections. One is rebo, and they were ladies' underwear, and he said, "Don't think that's a clash at all." The other one is Railbrook, and Railbrook, are, I don't know if they still exist, and part of Tootles who make shirts. So he had this Railbrook Toplin shirt, Railbrook, and he said, "Don't worry about that." I said. They won't, they'll be no problem. I'm their patent agent as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he said, that was it. So we, we got it in the register, but the registrar would only put us in part two of the register. The reason for that is he gave us, well, if somebody comes to me and say, I, I, I'm making shoes out of Reebok skin, I can't stop them saying that. Uh, so we had to go in part two. But it protected our name. Yeah. 20 years later, they got the information from the registrar that we'd be moved to part one of the register because now Reebok is a shoe. Yeah. Now, nobody um, knows the animal Reebok shoe, so, so we moved on. <laughs> and uh, we were also using Mercury was our name, but also we used our logo, the winged messenger. I don't know if you've seen Mercury, the winged messenger. He carries yes. his messages and his wings. That had been a... So, Okay, we're going to change our name. We're going to change it from Mercury to Reebok. That means our uh, our logo's gone, and we have to reinvent the logo. And it took some while before we got it, but that's how the Starcrest came about. I don't know if you know the Starcrest. Yeah, it's on yeah the team with Millions of shoes. Yes. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> and really, we we got uh, the next thing we get is a letter from Adidas, it's probably about another 12 months later. And we had been using on the side, our side markings on the side of the shoe had been two stripes, Adidas three, with two stripes and a T-bar. So the, the other one came down and then went to the back. But they thought that was an infringement. They thought that infringed the three stripes. Um, again, I think to be practical, we thought, well, it's great, would be a notice. All of a sudden, Adidas notice we're here. Wow, that's brilliant. It's quite ironic yeah. as well, isn't it? Yeah, but rather than fight and sort of go into a court case, which would yeah. probably end up with us losing a lot of money as well as <laughs> the deal, um, yeah. we said we'll change it. So we started looking around and having ideas, and the inspiration came from, in those days, British Airways, on the tail of the aircraft, they had this arrow shape. Mm. And uh, so we thought, well, that might work well. So we used that and we ended up then with the arrow. And then we put a cross stripe on and uh, that stands to today now. Yeah. It's such a powerful logo and, and the brand itself, I mean, the few things that you've said there, you surpassed the original dictionary meaning. Now it's like Reebok is, I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah. The legacy element to the whole story, if you, know, if, you had, if you had a different guy that you were dealing with there that wasn't as helpful, that wasn't as proactive, that didn't have the um, client that could potentially oppose the name on his own books as well, you know, if he hadn't looked out the window and saw Kodak and given you that, and if he didn't care and he just kind of went, no, can't, can't have that name, come back later, we would never have had Reebok. You well, know, all these little, yeah. little things. Yeah. Oh, well, life... Certainly, life for, for the Reebok brand has been a series of those things, circumstance, yeah. luck. Yeah. You know, probably changing our name has made it more famous. Mercury may not have been as, uh, um, what say, as unusual and as attractive. Mm. Absolutely. Um, having two stripes and a, and a bar, I think Gola have one stripe and a bar. I think that identifies them. But yeah. now, our side, our side stripes do identify the brand. I can remember as. Um, I can remember being a kid, we, we didn't have, or I didn't have the, uh, the branded stuff. It wasn't something that we could afford. So I used to spend a lot of time sat down fantasizing about having it and drawing the logos. And I can remember drawing that Reebok logo with the arrow, um, and which is why it was so amazing getting that first pair of football boots, you know, the Reebok football mm. boots. Mm. Um, so like, you must have been through plenty of other challenges and hardships to get to the level of success that you eventually did. But what moment sticks out for you, Joe, where you kind of, you know, along the journey, in my head, I, I see it as you and your brother looking at each other going, 
we've we've made it you know we've done it what what sticks out with your mind as as something like that well we we were in uh, athletic shoes mm-hmm. that that's really what the brand was known for running um but athletic shoes as running wasn't a bigger wasn't really big track and field was good uh and that and that had been what we'd grown up with but I, I knew in order for the brand to really take on, uh, we would have to have the American market. The American market to me was something that if we can make it to America, we, we, we'll be in a volume brand, a volume market. And that, that's what we'll be Because we needed, we needed volume. And the challenge was, okay, with a small factory <clears throat> doing about 2,000 pairs of shoes a week. Um, and yet we wanted to get to a market with probably we would need 500,000 pairs a week, something like that. It would, you know, I mean, these are the differences. How do you get from here to here? We need the market to grow, but how can you fulfill the market? So there were a lot of challenges in there, but it was 1968 when I first went to America. And uh, the biggest challenge then was I had a lot of people interested. What had happened is that uh, the Board of Trade, as it was then, they decided they would... Uh, uh, they would support uh, sports companies that wanted to export to America. And what they would do, they, they paid for a stand at the NSGA show, which is in Chicago. It's the National Sporting Goods Association of America. They put the show on every year. Well, I, think, I don't think they do it anymore now. Um, and the Board of Trade, that's the government, they bought a stand and they invited a lot of uh, sports brands to attend. They, they also paid for our airfare and they paid for 50% of our hotel bill. So it was a bit of a no-brainer, really, to nip over to America and take advantage of all that. But in 1968, I, I'm on the stand, and lots of people saying, oh, yeah, brilliant, like, like your stuff. Where do we get it from? <laughs> I said, well, you have to buy from us in England. And they said, what part of America is that? He's like, um, well, no, it's England, you know, not New England. It's Eng- Oh, well, look, when you get somebody, uh, we'll get to a place where we can buy it from here, we'll, you know, we'll place an order, definitely. Took me over 10 years with, I think I had six or seven different attempts, people who wanted to do that, who would, but it's a massive job. It's a massive undertaking to buy the shoes, to stop put them in stock and hold them and be able to service the industry. But it wasn't until 1979, NSGA show 1979, that I met Paul Feynman. Previous to that, we had the 1978 Commonwealth Games there in Edmonton. And uh, we had been trying to make a shoe to really get onto the American market. And to get onto the American market, it was... It was really understanding how, how we could do it because running during the 70s had started to become big. Mm. And so this allowed companies in America, Nike, in fact, to really become big. Brooks, Etonic, New Balance, they were all American brands. I was advertising in, in, in the same magazine, in Runner's World, but we were advertising from the UK. We did get some fairly famous people in the shoe lab. Um, Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter, they were Olympians, American Olympians. But Runner's World, that, that combination with them and Nike, all of a sudden, like, it, the boom, it just went across America. The whole thing, the whole craze went across America. And, and Runner's World, they, they, were, uh, and they were so unique in what they did. But what they also did is every year, they used to uh, rate the shoes. Mm-hmm. Words, if you sent them some shoes, they would put them through their tests and they would rank them. And uh, they ranked them one, two, three, four, and whatever. There was road training shoes, and that was the biggest market. There were road racing shoes, not quite as big a market, and any track spikes or other things similar. And uh, <clears throat> the problem was the market had grown so big that when they said, well, this Nike shoe now, this is number one. Everybody wanted it. Yeah. And every retailer in America tried to get stocks of it. And it, 
you just don't go from sort of a, a normal sale to colossal boom that uh, demanded once one as world had come out with uh, the numbers number one. So it probably took up to six months to start satisfying all the orders. Yeah. Problem is that come the next six months, it was a, another rating of shoes and it wouldn't be the same, of course. It'd be a different one. So the, the retail trade in America, all the sports stores, they were really up in arms on this because they got left with whatever was last year's number one, mm. they got left with the stock and they couldn't get the new number one because that, again, had to go through the process of finding the factories, getting the manufacturer, the whole thing. So after doing three years of this, they decided to change. And instead of rating them one, two, three, four, they started giving them star ratings. So the best was five stars and then four stars, three stars. So if you got a five star, there were probably five shoes would get a five star rating. Then it would, would go down. And we needed, we needed to get five star rating. So we designed this shoe. The Aztec was the main one. In fact, we call it the gold range because it was to do with the uh, Edinburgh Games. Sorry, the Edmonton Games in Canada. Yep. Yep. We call it the gold range. Aztec was our trainer. Um, <clears throat> Midas was our road racer. Yep. And Inca was a spike. So, and we got, I think it was about four goals at, uh, at Edmonton, which was good. But that was in 78, and we preferred the shoe ready to go into the, uh, um, the ratings for, uh, for 1979. Meanwhile, at the NSGA show, we had the shoes on show, and that's when I bumped into Paul Feynman. That's the first time. <clears throat> and he... He was uh, a distributor. Mm -hmm. Their company was Boston Camping. So they just distributed camping goods, tents, mm -hmm. fishing rods, all, all the small items. And he expressed interest, yeah. With running being that big, we, you know, we, we could well do with taking a run-shoe line. I also got a visit from Kmart. Mm -hmm. uh, and Kmart, well, well, Kmart, fine. I mean, yeah. they're, they're the biggest wholesalers, biggest sort of supermarket type thing in America. Great. So, <clears throat> show over. I come back. Information. Look, Jeff, we've got to sort of uh, think about this one. All right. I said, I'm going to go back in May, and I'm going to visit Kmart. I'm going to visit Paul Feimer. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and see, see where we're at. So, my first one was Kmart. Visited Kmart. Went to the reception. And she said, oh, Mr. Biasata, he is uh, row three... 10th desk, whatever it is. <laughs> you think, right, you know, what is this? <clears throat> Sat down with Mr. Biasati. Oh, great shoes, Joe. Yes, we, we can sell these. Said, but I, I need 25,000 pairs, <laughs> first order. Uh, but you're too expensive. You need to go and find a, a cheaper supply. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about our factory. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're thinking... Well, so, okay, right, well, think about that and get back to you. Well, I knew that 25,000 pairs, that immediate would be mm, about half our annual production, mm. something like that. So we needed, we needed to get to the Far East. We needed to get to Korea, mm. China, wherever it is. Um, but then I went on after seeing uh, Kmart. I went to see Paul Feynman. And Paul Feynman, yeah, I'm still interested. Great, said, I'll come across and uh, we'll have a look at it. He said, but, he said, if I'm going to go with it, I need the five stars. Yep. Right. He came across to England and he just wanted to see our operation and who were using the shoes. I mean, mm. We could take him to any event he wanted and we knew the winner would be wearing Reebok. Wow. And half the field would be wearing Reebok. So. Mm. So he was impressed by that. <clears throat> Our factory didn't impress him at all. <laughs> <laughs> we, he was not impressed by the factory. But nevertheless, he'd gone back and the August issue of Runner's World came out. And it was really Runner's World wasn't in the UK. We, we got our copy sort of probably a, a week, two weeks later. Yeah. So I rang Paul Fam and said, Paul, just go out and uh, see how we did with, uh, with Aztec. It was about an hour later when he came back. 
because it was very early morning for him when I rang him. I, I think about lunchtime here, so about seven o'clock in the morning or whatever. <clears throat> he came back and said, Joe, he said, Estate, you got five stars. Brilliant. Well, <clears throat> and he said, also, your other two models got five stars. <laughs> wow. So when you talk about the breakthrough moment, yeah, that was it. Yeah. We've done it. Now we just had to bring it home because we've got a five-star shoe. <clears throat> we've got something that people will want. Now we have to make it <laughs> and we have to fund it. Mm -hmm. So those are the big, big questions that, uh, that really took over. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, I had a good friend at Barter. I don't know if you've heard of Barter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, used to, I don't think they're on the high streets as much now, but Barter are the biggest independent shoemaker in the world. Mm -hmm. They make them all over. Yep. Um, and they were at Tilbury down near London. Um, and he said, Joe, look, we'll help. We'll make them. Wow. So uh, this was great. And what we had to do then was to get the patterns and we'd transfer everything down to, uh, uh, down to Barter and let them, you know, if they could make it for us, Fine, so they can make a start on it. Um, meanwhile, I'm, I go back over to America because I've got to start talking uh, terms with, uh, with Paul. <laughs> and I, I arrived there, and I'd been into the warehouse and the Boston camping operation. They closed it down. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. And, and I'm thinking, you know, surely they wanted to bolt us onto mm. what we're doing. But no, there were three of them. There was Paul, um, his brother, uh, and his brother-in-law. They were in the business, and they must have been absolutely tired of doing it. <clears throat> they must have, because they just decided. Um, his, brother, his brother went to uh, make wallets. Mm. Uh, he set up a little sewing room making wallets. His brother-in-law opened a second-hand car lot. Okay. And Paul was uh, ready to do Reebok. Wow. And his commitment, I can say now, his commitment was absolutely total. He was wow. fully committed to doing it. Um, so uh, I said, okay, I've got to go and see Barter. I said, you know, to help us prepare, because he decided that he, he, he would actually launch the brand at the 1980 NSGA show when he knew all the people coming in. Okay, we got, we got the five stars in, in August, and... Uh, he would sort of make a few noises, but he'd be ready to get the products onto, onto the market in, uh, in January, well, it would be February, February in 1980. So we're all getting set up. And I went over to the show, so I'm with them because they needed me as a bit of technical backup mm -hmm. and whatever. Uh, so I, I was there to meet the people, and they started taking orders. Lots of them, lots of them. <clears throat> and uh, I then say, okay, uh, I'll go back and we'll see what we can do to get Barter. Meanwhile, I got a phone call that uh, Jeff had been taken to hospital. And uh, I mean, regrettably at that point, when I, when I, and I came back and he had had an operation for stomach cancer. And unfortunately, he didn't make it. So the problem at this point now is I've just got America and I'm just talking about how we can get production. Mm. And all of a sudden, well, Jeff was the mainstay as far as he looked after production. Mm. That was what he did. He let me do all the rest, the travel, the anything. So that was, that was the biggest problem and probably uh, the saddest moment. Yeah. Uh, of, our relationship was there. We, we were doing so well. Mm. Um, we'd had lots and lots of problems. Meanwhile, that we, we'd overcome. Neil went out of business once when we lost the distributor of our, our distributor in the UK. But all these things we got over. But it, it, all I had to do then was say, right, I appointed, well, I changed things around to make sure the factory could keep working. But the factory wasn't important to me. Jeff would have been important because he would have been the man who would go down to Barter, spend some time with them, and get them to do the product. We didn't have that. So I had to get down to Barter. And, but I'm being torn between distribution yeah. in the UK and I've got all sorts of things. 
I uh, I appointed, well, I, I put a girl in who had been doing secretarial work to really run the operational side of the factory and thing. Um, the factory foreman, I made him sort of, look, you're in charge of production now and all your materials. I got them to work together. So I, and then I, I took one of the uh, designers from Barter. Mm-hmm. He'd been working on our show. I said, would you like to join us? Oh, so fantastic. he came up and joined us. So that made that pretty good. Um, unfortunately, with Jeff not being there and Jeff not being able to do it, Barter made 20,000 20, pairs of shoes and shipped them to America. And the good thing about that was they gave credit. We knew that moving to the Far East, there'd be no credit. You'd have to yeah. find the money and put a letter of credit up and things like that. So that was good. <clears throat> it was working. The price was a bit better than our price, so we, mm-hmm. we could make some money out of it. Uh, but then... Paul Feynman phoned me, he said, Joe, I've got problems. The shoes are collapsing. Oh, no. Well, well what had happened is that uh, EVA, which is uh, it's in every shoe now, EVA is a sponge material. Mm-hmm. It's a plastic sponge material. It's not rubber. Mm-hmm. It's made out of plastic and blown bubbles. And uh, the guys that... The guys at Barter, they, I mean, it's such a big company. They had their own rubber factory. They made their own rubber. Uh, but I'm finding this, and Paul came over, and we took this to them, and, okay, they apologized and whatever, but they hadn't cured it properly. Not all, not all the sheets had gone wrong, mm-hmm. but you could say a good percentage. Okay. What ended up is that Paul Feynman never paid for the 20,000 pairs of shoes. Wow. And... And I said, well, if you don't send them back because they'll just have to be destroyed. So he kept the shoes. And all he did is that if somebody sent a shoe back, he'd just replace it. Yep. Apologies, just re- and Now, had, that, had we been doing that in the UK, we'd have probably been out of business. Sure. Right? Yeah. In America, no. They give you a chance. Mm. And so he managed to get about. Meanwhile, during selling that 20,000 birds, uh, I managed to get the people online in Korea. I'd been over to Korea. In fact, I took a flight, great flight. Uh, it was around the world in 80 days mm-hmm. or less. First class standby. Okay. I mean, nice. it was sort of a contradiction in terms of the first class standby. How do you do first class <laughs> standby? All right. It, it worked very well. It, uh, first stop was uh, Frankfurt. I think it was where we loaded up with a few Germans. And uh, the second stop uh, was India somewhere. Um, <clears throat> and then Tehran. Mm-hmm. And I was in terror with that plane. We didn't go to the terminal. They told us, I'll just keep seated. Please don't walk about whilst sure. we load. And, of course, I think it's about three days later, the Iranians took the hostages from the American embassy. Yeah. And, and I'm flying Pan Am, so. <laughs> wow. Probably a, a close shave, but too yeah. near to. So anyway, we flew on from there. Eventually arriving in, I think I went to Hong Kong. And from Hong Kong, I was due then to go to Korea to meet these people who were going to do the shoes. In Hong Kong, I got a phone call. Joe, uh, don't come to Korea. Uh, the, somebody just shot the president. Yeah. So we're in martial law. Think, well, where are you? Well, we're in Taiwan. What do you want me to do? Well, look, you can either come to Taiwan or hang on where you are. I said, I'll come to Taiwan. <clears throat> so as I arrive in Taiwan... That night, we were sitting around Emma and said, look, we're going back to Korea because whilst it's martial law, it's not been a big, a big thing. There's been no big explosions on the uh, president. You know. So the following day, I went to Korea, and uh, that was an experience itself, martial law, guns in every door. Uh, I arrived in Korea, arrived at the, uh, the factory, and after all this doom and gloom and seeing all these soldiers around, and as soon as I arrived at the factory, all these gates, soldiers on either side, and it was just like arriving in Shangri-La, all of a sudden, oh, hooray, you're right, how are you, Joey? <sighs> you know, it's amazing, the relief when you, wow, that's great. So the days after we went to see the factories, great, they had big signs of welcome Reebok. And surprisingly, they made a brilliant shoe, a bit primitive in the mm. method. But, um, I, I can, definitely what sticks in my mind is putting the eyelet holes in to take mm-hmm. the horses. And all they had was what looked like a big tree stump, somebody holding the upper, somebody else holding a, uh, a punch, 
and a guy with a big hammer hitting it. <laughs> yeah, must have been insured or something. Yeah, if he missed it, somebody's <laughs> a mess. <laughs> so at that point, we'd got what we needed and we, we could feed poor firemen. The only problem is money. How do you how do you pay for this? Because now instead of getting credit uh, or twenty thousand pounds free, instead of getting credit, he had to put money up front. Sure. So I mean that in itself becomes another story. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it's um the the continual innovation um that you must have had to go through and all the twists and turns along the way to stay ahead and to keep that reputation going after having that initial success and exposure with Runners World and getting the five stars. That must have been a challenge itself and you must have had to go to all kinds of places to make sure that you stayed ahead of that. So Joe, all my, uh, all my dreams as a child came true the day that um, through work that I was doing for a company called Les Mills. Oh, yeah. Company, yeah. Um, as, a, as a trainer and a presenter standing there in front of uh, thousands at some time, um, people doing, doing a, essentially aerobics classes. Yeah. Um, as, as a result of getting that gig, I was allowed to say that I was uh, a, a Reebok athlete um, because right. we used to get given kit, we used to get given shoes, we used to get given clothes. And you can imagine, you know, as a kid drawing the logo yeah. and fantasizing about having all this kit, I was yeah. actually getting this kit now. And not only that, I'd have pretty much um, trade discount on, on products. So I was head to toe in everything, you know. Um, now, aerobics has played such a massive part of the Reebok journey. What, what happened and how did it happen and what difference did it make going through that whole process? Well, as we said, we got five stars that put us on the map. That was great. And Paul Feynman, he started to uh, sell the shoes. Um, he needed finance. And uh, fortunately, and I'd been with him to one or two meetings, which were quite bizarre, but uh, um, eventually he got his finance from one of the UK of all places, from Pentland Industries, Stephen Rubin. Uh, because Stephen was, uh, his company, ASCO, Associated Shoe, they were out in the Far East and they were actually making the products in the Far East, making products in the Far East. So the people I, I was working with, they had to hand this stuff over to ASCO because that was, that was the financing. The financing was, we'll just, as in fact, it starts off with Bahasa, uh, you didn't need to pay for the shoes. We'll give you a credit line. Uh, I can tell you, when it got to 20 million, uh, Stephen was a bit worried. <laughs> yeah. But what happened, of course, is that now he's got his uh, financing. And, and Stephen Rubin also wanted uh, Paul Fireman to sell to big stores just what they wanted. If Sears wanted shoes, just go in there and they would make Sears shoes. And Paul said, no, no, we're, we're Reebok. I'm only going to do Reebok. So we only did Rebo. And for a couple of years, business is growing, selling a lot of uh, running shoes. But there's a guy down in California, a tech rep, who uh, he again was an enthusiastic Reebok man, a guy called Arnold Martinez. Mm -hmm. And uh, in California, he, he, uh, his wife was going to these classes with girlfriends. You know, the girlfriends were going to aerobic classes. Yeah. And because it was, well, exercising to music and that, the girls enjoy that they, they love that oh, yeah. so Arnold thought I'll come along and I'll go along and have a look what, uh, what they're doing so he joined Frankie and they went to this aerobics class and he's seeing all these girls just enjoying life I mean, yeah, yeah. there were not many men there if any at that point yes. girls just enjoying uh, and what he did see is that uh, such a mixture of footwork Nobody was really wearing, some were even barefoot wow. doing these exercises. And so it struck him that, uh, well, if we made a shoe that was really, really comfortable and spongy, and especially, just, especially for women, not just a training shoe, not just a running shoe, which uh, there were one or two running shoes that they were wearing, not just that, this would be for women. And they made it on a woman's last, which was good and bad. It was very narrow, and it was okay for the American women's feet but not all women in the world had that same thought so it was quite sure. quite narrow and because uh, he had this idea it was a brilliant market idea uh, we'll make it in glove leather mm -hmm. and uh, I, when I heard they were making it in glove leather I said no can't make it in glove leather um, and yeah 
we did make our, our world ten in glove leather, but we used the suede side out. Here we were using the leather side out, and they needed to put a rough roughing it to take the adhesive. Mm-hmm. If you, if you didn't, the adhesive wouldn't go into the leather unless it was roughed up a bit. Uh, and, you know, you're starting with one millimetre, one millimetre of leather, and you're trying to take a bit of, bit of surface off it. Well, you're, you're asking for trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, again, had it been in the UK, it would have been trouble because a lot of these shoes just fell apart. Okay. But he took the idea to Paul Feynman. Mm-hmm. I also said, look, Paul, there's this new thing going on. And Paul didn't want to know. I said, look, we're doing okay. Yeah. We're doing okay. Why do we want to start making a few shoes for a bit of a craze that's going on okay. in, in L.A.? So Arnold went round his back, uh, arranged things with uh, some of the production team, get me 200 pairs. And <clears throat> so they made him his shoes. He gave them out and got people going. That was the start of it. Okay. The shoe had to be changed. The, the leathers had to be changed. It had to, but the women loved it. And it was a white shoe with just Reebok on the side and this little flash of a, an Ameri- of a Union Jack. And I must admit, the Union Jack was brilliant. And that was Paul Feynman, because Paul Feynman, we had the Road Star. Uh, we had the Starcrest, and that was a bit similar to the Union Jack. And that's what we said, look, it's very similar to the Union Jack, but nobody knows Road, the, this Starcrest. Everybody in America, and that surprised me. Like everybody in America knows the Union Jack. He was so confident in the Union Jack that it, he didn't have to build uh, knowledge of a brand or, you know, what would what would our mark be? The Union Jack. Smart. So aerobics. Once we got the aerobics going, um, we were doing about five million pairs a month. Wow. There's a Union Jack on each shoe. Yep. And in a Union Jack box. And so that's 15 million a month Union Jacks spreading around the world. Amazing. It was amazing. We, we thought that was yeah. a, great, a great thing to happen. And it held because, you know, you said there about the, the, the comment there of it being a craze, you know, why should we go and just jump on this short-term win, perhaps, from yeah. a business perspective. But that, that, I mean, what year was that, Joe, that that was going on? We're talking about... Um, 84, 85, maybe. Yeah. 85. Because, I mean, it had started somewhere in 82, but it was only yeah. small. Things like this start and it had to... Of course. Things have to happen for it to, to grow. Of course, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I can... I was born in 88, and yeah. my mum, my and she's still in the fitness industry now, my mum, yeah. but she was, she was teaching aerobics, Joe. Um, right. I was born into that, you know. She's learning her routines while I'm doing my colouring in on the floor. Like, it it's what the house was and and she was one of the the the, the typical kind of pin up like aerobics instructors with the reebok shoes and they'd use the reebok steps in the classes you know so yeah, it really was an aerobics teacher as well amazing yeah it's, a, it's such a, a fascinating uh, there's lots of connections between us um right. and um yeah like it held it wasn't a craze it was a it was a phenomenon and it was the start of perhaps a new market yeah, but then it spread over into Hollywood because yeah. being in LA, this is where it all started. People like Jay Fonda and a lot yep. of and, and the women down there, they were all wearing Reeboks, not just for training in. They, they yep. wore them to work. Everybody was wearing these things in the street. Uh, they'd take the heels with them. And when they got to work, they put heels on, but everybody wearing them for comfort. So, yeah. whichever, so whichever the M is, you know, wearing high tops. And uh, it, these are the things that brought us into into Hollywood, really, and into the entertainment business. And when it starts transferring across into fashion, it's a whole other ball game, right? Oh, it is, yeah. I mean, that, that's what created the volume and sent Reebok to the number one sports, yeah. sports, sports company in the world. Wow. Overtaking over Nike, overtaking Adidas at that time. So it Amazing. Was in- it must have been nice in those moments to look back in you know, those early days when Adidas are threatening to, to push a legal... Um, suit against you guys and you know obviously uh, fast forwarding years and I know you wouldn't have necessarily had had, had your hands on the wheel as this moment um, in time occurred but Adidas then eventually taking Reebok on it's quite right. ironic in a way that at the start when you guys were starting out they wrote that letter to you and then later they come with their with their arms open wanting to to do their thing so um, 
what looking back at it all joe and it's an exciting time for you because you know you've been working on the book for seven years you mentioned to me off off our recording <laughs> yeah. um but obviously the the story itself it is your story and it's not just your story it's your family it's your it's it's your legacy and and and, and every box that's ever gone to a home and been opened and every time someone's laced up a pair of those shoes it's that's a part of that legacy and what they did in those shoes is also a part of the legacy that you've created which is really quite amazing when you think about that and the millions of people that have been exposed to what you've created um but when we look back and if you were to kind of do anything differently um if you could do it all again what would you do differently well that's a it's a difficult question because it does rely on hindsight Mm. and the, the problem that I mean, I come across this quite a bit. Well, you know, why didn't you do this? What did you do? Well, I'm sorry, we became number one. Yeah. What can you do different to become number one? And if you did do differently, where would we have ended up? Because once you take once you take a different bend in the road, is it going to lead you to that goal? Achieving the goal, we achieved it. Yeah. And so when people ask, I say, well, I find it very difficult. Maybe I. I I know that Phil Knight in his book sort of mm-hmm. said, the, the only thing left for me in life is, can I do it again? Yeah. He didn't want to change it. <laughs> yeah. He wanted to do it again. Yeah. And I could say, well, I'm not sure about doing it again because the only thing I would like to change is that the people that died in my life that should still be here. Yeah. But I can't do that. Yeah. You know, just as I can't go back and change anything either, you know, I can't bring these people back. I can't do those things you'd like to do. Yeah. Um, so what would I do? Probably nothing. I, I'd probably I love say, that. let's carry on. I love that. No regrets. Yeah. yeah. No, no regrets. No, no, no regrets. I, when, you know, when I ask the question, I really deep down hope that's the answer, you know, because mm. I don't see it any other way. There's, there's, there's no logical way to approach that question. Anything that happens is perhaps a reflection of regret. It's just no regrets. It's, it is what it is, and we're proud of what happened. And if you could change something, you'd change things that you can't change. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, um, they, they, those, you know, the things that did happen changed. They're, they're the ones that changed it. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jeff dying obviously changed it tremendously. Mm. Uh, what, what would have happened if he'd have been alive? But yeah. nice to think we'd have done the same, but together. And it takes a lot of internal reflection and courage to be able to say something like that out loud because you know yeah we can both kind of relate to this us uh, we have this kind of thing in common here that we have to be grateful for what happened afterwards because it's what happened afterwards yeah yeah and that and and that's that's it that there is that's the only part that we could have had choice in um you know so therefore it's the only thing we can be accountable to from that point on and you, you could have easily have at multiple times I, I imagine in your life just thought it's not worth it now well <laughs> the thing is that uh, I, I don't think that ever happened mm. I when when in fact probably the opposite yeah yeah because yeah you want to make sure it, it works yeah. you want to make sure that the dream two of you had one of us could still make sure it happens. Absolutely. Because uh, uh, I was once asked about, uh, you know, well, your story, why is it your story? And, and, I, and I say, it isn't, it, it's two of us, but I just hope at the end that if Jeff could see what we'd done, yes, he would be happy with that final result. Um, Absolutely. Not to be. But Absolutely. as far as I'm concerned, I can't. What I can't change, I can't change, and I wouldn't change the rest. Absolutely. And for, for you guys listening, it's very important that it doesn't matter if you're in business or you're employed or you're unemployed or you work, you're, you're a full time mum or, or, or a single parent, whatever the challenges that you're faced with that you, that you can't control, the sooner you make that pain part of your strength, the better right oh absolutely so we we had many areas small large where you get a big problem the problem faces you and the first thing as far as i was concerned was okay how do we turn this to our advantage what how are we going to make make this a good thing not a bad thing because you've got to move differently 
So let's make it work for us. And anytime when there's a, a challenge or a problem, that, that, that's been my philosophy on it is, oh, let's not put our head in our hands and worry about the fact that something's happened. Let's look at it and say, well, there must be something good in this. How do we, how do we work it? And, and that, that did work for us for most of the time, indeed. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to the 25-year-old version of you? <laughs> uh, because that's probably more difficult than the question before. Because <laughs> uh, I look back sometimes and you wonder what drove me to keep pushing um, and searching for that key to get the brand into the USA. Now, all that traveling, you know, it's traveling, traveling there. Um, but it, it was continuous and exciting, it was an adventure. And uh, the only thing I, I can tell myself is to be prepared for the innumerable obstacles and disappointments that you encounter along the way. Sure. But then again, I think, but unless I knew the result, where would I be put off taking the risk? If you know, yes. Yeah, would I be put <laughs> yes. off? So, no, on the end, I think. I would just pat him on the back. Yeah, nice. Say, yeah, get on with it. Nice. That's really that's a really interesting answer with a lot of layers. That I think listening, you, you might want to rewind and go listen back to that. If you you know that that was a really interesting answer. Um, I really relate to that because I think if I was to give advice to, and I'm I, you know I'm 32, but even the 25 year old me probably wouldn't listen, Joe. No. Because he was going to do it anyway. He was that hell bent in doing what he was doing that he would do. It. He would have done it anyway. So you just give him a package because you know it'd be all right. You know. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So last last question. One of the things that that really fascinates me about our small but meaningful imprint that we put on the world while we're here, while we're alive, each and every one of us is the legacy that we live and leave. And we've talked a little bit about it today already, how your legacy is, is huge, really, when you think about what you've created and how many people have experienced, similar to myself, being a young kid, maybe just wanting a pair of Reebok shoes and opening it at Christmas or whatever, or even the athletes that have accounted that small fraction of success that they wouldn't have had if they had a different pair of shoes on when they did the race or in the event. You know, all of these stories that people have or the aerobics instructor that, that 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 had the time of his or her life teaching those classes wearing Reebok shoes it's really quite special what a footprint you know and pun intended you've made with what you've done in your life and the legacy that you are living and leaving now what does that word mean to you what does legacy mean to you Joe Foster? Well <clears throat> I'm just a part really of the Foster Reebok legacy started with my grandfather, and I guess I'm lucky to be born into that fa family to be enabled the opportunity to take it on. So uh, it's uh, from sort of, you've got to say, well, how, you know, it's more fortune and it's more opportunity that was there for me to carry on. A family at least 120, 130 years have gone by, so I can only pick up so much. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful to have that opportunity uh, of taking that family to tradition and, and, and really achieve the pinnacles of success uh, and then tell the story. Tell the story, exactly that. And that leads us nicely to the book. The book... <laughs> which is by the time you listen to this listener, it will be out um, and you'll be able to get yourself a copy um, from all, I guess, major book outlets. Um, but what, you know, where would you like people to go, Joe? Where's the best place for them to go from your point of view to come buy a copy of this book? Well, the book is launching on the 1st of October. And unfortunately, with COVID-19 problem that we have, there's not got the opportunity to do any sign-ins in bookshops. Of course. It will be available in bookshops. And I have signed the column plates, the papers yeah. that uh, will stick into the book. So I've signed plenty of those. Um, but the only way you can obtain a personalised one, um, 
would be, and of course we we, we actually given an extra gift, and it's yeah. a replica of a 1920s letterhead from J. Edward Foster's. Now, mm. uh, I don't know if you've heard about it, but the 1920 letterhead has over 90 team football teams yep. listed yep. listed on it. So they supplied them, and yeah. you know, there is there's many many stories as to why didn't J. Edward Foster become the biggest uh, football book manufacturer in the country. Well, I, I still wonder about that. But if you want that, uh, if you want it signed personally, there's only one way in that. You're not going to have to buy it from me. Yes. <laughs> That's obviously what we want people to do. So where should they go? Where's the, what's well, the website? www.jwfosterheritage, all one word, dot com. Yep. jwfosterheritage. Okay. Dot com yeah and that is where to go and i've done i've got mine in, it's be arriving when they all go out in their packages to their various yeah. recipients i've already ordered mine i think i ordered a few i'm not i can't quite remember i'm pretty sure i did and the uh the drawing which which i didn't realize was a drawing i just saw the the prints that you guys are, are also offering right and, and, and it's because yeah. i i it's really peculiar again it's, an, it's a great little connection i've got a client who who makes shoes as a shoe designer and makes shoes right. she's done lots of different campaigns for reebok and she mentioned this girl that she knows that does the drawings and showed me a picture and it was the same one it was the same drawing yeah, yeah. yeah. well we know we know steph very well steph that's it yeah. yeah yeah she she well she used to live local to us uh, she now lives in barcelona wow nice um, and she did the drawing we've got one or two shoes that we'll probably get her to to draw um, like World Ten and things like that, but that that was a pair of shoes that were made by the Japanese, our Japanese distributor, and they're, they're small, small shoes, but they're actually gold plated. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she had great fun getting the pencils to draw the gold plate, but she's extremely talented. Yeah. So we had to draw that, and and now it's available if people want to buy it, and that's yeah. on the website. Because uh, yeah. Um jwfosterheritage.com to get yourself Correct. your own personalized signed copy and i guess that will be open and and will continue as an offer for yes. a while before you yeah okay cool um so it doesn't matter what time you're watching it uh, listening to this go and check it out if you've been interested in what we've talked about today again joe thank you so much for being here and agreeing to do this and for giving your time um, for opening up and sharing your story and your opinion and insight onto the journey and everything that you guys have achieved and you know it's really quite amazing and uh, I'm still pinching myself that you've uh, done this here with me I think it's awesome um, so thank you well Tommy it's been a pleasure and uh, as we said what is the heritage the heritage is being able to tell the story and let's hope this tells the story gets the story to a lot of people and uh, I hope they all enjoy it Thank you. Thank you very much. I look forward to, to reading the book as well. And uh, anyone who's listening to this, if you've read it or you're reading it, let us know on social media. You can find actually both of us on Instagram. And Joe is uh, across pretty much all the social media platforms. You can find him. And um, I'm sure that uh, we'd both appreciate the fact that you'd listen today and let us know about that. So make sure you do that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And we'll see you in the next episode.